Joining us, and welcome to episode 407 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. This week's show is a review of 2023 and a look ahead to this year. The episode is already recorded and edited, but I wanted to add some thoughts about Wednesday's events, the withdrawal of Chris Christie and the CNN debate between Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. Christie was getting no traction in the race. He was never going to get the nomination. His reason for running, as he said many times, was to let the world know about the danger of returning Donald Trump to the White House. Despite his past subservience to Trump and his reputation as a bully, many Democrats and members of the media liked what he had to say. But he was often booed at the Republican debates. This is, after all, Donald Trump's party. Christie's remarks on Wednesday deserve repeating here because he made a case against Trump that no other candidate would make even though they are all ostensibly running against him. We want to change this party, and if we want to change this country, it's hard work. It's not easy. From the moment I got into the race, the decision that I made was really simple. I would rather lose by telling the truth than lie in order to win. And I feel no differently today because this is a fight for the soul of our party and the soul of our country. We have candidates in this race who have run away from forums where they were afraid they were going to be booed. I run into the forums where I know I'm going to be booed because being booed for telling the truth is a badge of honor. I'm proud of everything we've said and done so far. And anyone who is unwilling to say that he is unfit to be president of the United States is unfit themselves to be president of the United States. My goal has never been to be just a voice against the hate and the division and the selfishness of what our party has become under Donald Trump. It's also been to win the nomination and defeat Joe Biden and restore our party and our country to a new place of hope and optimism in this country. I've always said that if there came a point in time in this race where I couldn't see a path to accomplishing that goal, that I would get out. And it's clear to me tonight that there isn't a path for me to win the nomination, which is why I'm suspending my campaign tonight for President of the United States. He didn't, as some speculated, endorse Haley. His withdrawal might help her, but it's hard to see a Christie endorsement helping her or anyone. In fact, he made a swipe at Haley in an off-mic moment. Yeah, I mean, look, she spent $68 million so far, just on TV. 
spent 68 million so far, 59 million by DeSantis, and we spent 12. I mean, who's punching above their weight and who's getting a return on their investment, you know? And she's going to get smoked. And you and I both know it. She's not up to this. As for Haley, she and DeSantis spent two hours on CNN Wednesday night tearing each other apart in a debate that couldn't possibly benefit anyone except the guy who has been hiding from the debates all along to begin with, Donald Trump. Anyway, the Iowa caucuses are next Monday. Okay, back to your regularly scheduled podcast. It's hard to conclude that 2023 was anything but a bad year politically. We have a president who has failed to inspire the country and whose unfavorables continue to rise, while his likely opponent, his predecessor seeking a comeback, is under four indictments, totaling 91 counts, and who is nonetheless the overwhelming favorite to win his party's nomination. Said former president has used language denouncing his foes that seem out of the Hitler playbook and whose announced plans, should he win, reek of authoritarianism and a real threat to democracy. And take a look at Congress. Fifteen excruciating ballots to come up with a speaker, only to see him ousted nine months later. Demands and conditions made by far-right lawmakers about the border that have held up aid to Ukraine, plus warnings of a government shutdown if the new speaker gives up too much in his negotiation with Democrats, and an obsession with George Santos, whose lies and schemes delighted late-night comics, but disgraced the office to which he was elected. Usually, after having gone through a particularly bad year, the obvious inclination is to say, wow, I'm sure glad that's over, and I can't wait for the new year to begin. For me, there's a sense of dread I'm feeling that it's only going to get worse. I've invited my old NPR sidekick, Ron Elving, for a farewell to 23 and a look ahead to 24. The last time we tried this on The Political Junkie was 2018, with Ron saying... It's the worst it's ever been. It, no, it, it's not the worst it's ever been. We've had worse years in, in America, and we've had worse years in Washington, we've had worse years in Congress, but not many. This was a bad year. Ron, so uh, I'll start the same way. Uh, what say you about 2023? It was worse than 2018, and uh, and clearly so. I mean, you already spelled it out pretty well. Congress's approval is is down under 20%, looking at various polls. And, you know, Congress never really, really scores high in terms of public approval. But still, they're down into the teens, and you've got to figure if the hardcore partisans are saying they approve but, but don't really. And so... Uh, this is this is as bad a relationship between Congress and the country as as I've seen in in well, I'd say forty fifty years of watching it carefully and and I've studied back Congresses and difficult times for Congress I, I just really can't find a time when Congress has had so little respect and I and I find myself dreading the presidential race it seems like whatever restraints Donald Trump had in twenty twenty uh, if there were any are completely gone. Like he's saying more things and more things that more and more over the top, you know, crossing the line and his supporters can't get enough. You know, when they let, I think the real number is 15, 16 million people into our country. When they do that, we got a lot of work to do. They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. They poison mental institutions and I absolutely agree with you. I dread it. That's exactly the word I would use. And for example, just uh, the last few days, uh, Illinois has a pledge that they ask people to sign if they're going to be on the primary ballot in Illinois. And it just says simply, uh, I'm, I'm a candidate for president of the United States. And, 
and and I support the Constitution. And if I should lose, I, I will not participate in any effort to overthrow the government or to deny the voters the results of the election as tabulated and certified. It's just a simple pledge saying I'm I'm in for the system. And Trump signed it in 2020. He signed it in 2016. But he has refused to sign it this year. What does that tell you? Uh, it, it tells me more than I'd like to hear, that's for sure. You know, one, one question we're going to obviously have to get an answer to is whether Section 3 of the 14th Amendment might keep Trump off the ballot, you know, as Colorado and Maine have suggested. As much as I think Trump is, has violated the insurrection clause, something doesn't feel right if, if Democrats are going to rule him off the ballot but of their states, but Republicans will keep him on the ballot in their states. That doesn't sound right. It does not. And, and there is something that does not love the idea that any court would say that any candidate that the voters clearly have an interest in, and Donald Trump is ahead in some national polls, at least tied in national polls. He's clearly the front runner for the Republican nomination. So it would be one thing to say, well, he can be on the primary ballots, uh, and, and, but we won't let him on the ballot in November. Uh, th- that's kind of hard to imagine. Nonetheless, because we are talking about some pretty clear language in the Constitution, every amendment is part of the Constitution. We're talking about some pretty clear language here that would seem to indicate that certainly if he's convicted, but even if he's just engaged in, in the minds of the people who put the ballots together in the 50 states, he is vulnerable to being ruled ineligible. Now, again, but by this Supreme Court, well, it will have to be the Supreme Court. Of course, it would be appealed to the Supreme Court and the court's going to weigh in. Uh, They're going to hear the case on an expedited basis. And we would expect to hear something, I would think, well before summer from the court and hopefully even faster. They did that in Gore versus uh, rather uh, Bush versus Gore in 2000. They acted very quickly to determine who would be the president. And in this instance, Obviously, if they were to rule Trump off the ballot, uh, they would be pretty much deciding who wouldn't be president, even if not necessarily who would be. You know, that just like with the so-called impeachment of Joe Biden, you know, the the retribution for what Trump went through, you know that uh, Republicans are going to say, I think Joe Biden participated in insurrection by stealing the election in 2020. Maybe we should rule him off the ballot. So you know there's going to be tit for tat if this goes on. Yes, that's right. But I think in, in the end... That's why it has to go to the Supreme Court immediately. And quickly, right. And just simply have the issue laid to rest. And, and whether the court decides, no, we don't want to tell the voters they can't do this, or whether the court decides something we can't at this point imagine, I hope the court is as unified as possible, whatever they decide. I hope they're as unified as possible. Bush v. Gore was five to four. Terribly painful moment for American democracy. But to his credit, Al Gore immediately said, all right, that's it. Supreme Court ruled. I am done, and he conceded, and I won't call him back this time. That was the right thing to do, and one would hope, but one would doubt, that uh, Donald Trump would let it go at that if he were to be on the short end of a decision of that kind. And do you think Clarence Thomas uh, recuses himself, or lots of luck with that? Yeah, I I think there's no chance that he would confess that he is in some sense or another compromised. compromised. <laughs> but, but, of course, his wife was involved in, in the effort to uh, overturn the results of the 2020 election. I think that's clear. And that will be clearer in the months ahead with the trial. So with that trial pending, we, there's so much we don't know. But it just I, I completely agree with you. There's something deep down in any 
person who believes in democracy that says that no court should say that the people's choice for president can't be their choice. There is an irony, though, of, of Trump complaining about election interference. Well, that's it's just it's it's an, it's absurd. It's absurd. And this is someone who has been. Uh, we, we've got the Iowa caucuses coming up January fifteenth. The Iowa caucuses, and you remember, and I know you do. Eight years ago, Donald Trump lost the Iowa caucuses to Ted Cruz, and immediately started questioning whether or not that was the accurate result. Even then, twenty sixteen, it was fixed, right? Yes, eight years ago, he stolen. was out there saying this election was stolen, and and you know, I mean. <laughs> It, it, it just doesn't seem to matter if he loses. He just insists that it was uh, rigged or, or miscounted or, or illegal. It doesn't depend on who it's doing it. It doesn't have to be Democrats. It doesn't have to be state authorities or party authorities. Anything that goes against him was rigged. Right. If he, if he wins, it's fair and square. If he loses, it's, it's stolen from him. You know, you, you mentioned 2016 and Ted Cruz, and of course, 2012 was uh, Rick Santorum, the winner in 2008, was uh, Mike Huckabee. Iowa doesn't seem to pick winners, but this one, this year seems different. Yes, in this case, it's reflecting something. It's not a quirky Iowa call. Like, remember that crazy business between Buttigieg and, and Sanders right. uh, on the Democratic side. And it's it's been dicey in both parties. In this instance, Iowa's numbers, while they may be more pro-Trump than some other states, they are reflective of a general state within the Republican Party of believing that whether you really think the election of 2020 was stolen or not, and many people say they do, uh, whether you really believe that or not, Donald Trump is your guy. They have decided he is on their side. And that is a decision that voters always make, whether they really articulate it or not. They decide this guy is my guy. This guy is on my side. Okay, so the 15th is Iowa. Eight days later is New Hampshire. Uh, South Carolina is at the end of February. Should we bother saying that, you know, if, if Nikki Haley doesn't win her home state, it's over for her, or is the race over already? I, I think it's, in many respects it, it's got to be over already. There's no chance she's going to win in Iowa. There's no chance that she's going to win in New Hampshire. Could be close. Point. Could be close, right? If... If, let us say, and this, for example, if, let's say, Chris Christie were to drop out and endorse her, and before the Civil War remark by Nikki Haley, you could entertain a glimmer of hope that the anti-Trump vote might consolidate around Nikki Haley, taking a few away from DeSantis, taking a substantial number from Christie, and she could close the gap. And if she was within single digits of Trump, I mean, if she was in, in New Hampshire, eight points, in New Hampshire, it would be like Pat Buchanan bruising George H.W. Bush there in 1992, or like, go even further back, the embarrassment to LBJ in 1968. I mean, those weren't cases of somebody rising up and beating the front runner. It was just an embarrassment. And, and, and she could do that if she could consolidate the anti-Trump vote. But I think since the Civil War gaffe, it's been very hard for her to restore the momentum she had before that. I mean, I think the cause of the Civil War was basically how government was going to run, the freedoms and what people could and couldn't do. What do you think the cause of the Civil War was? It was funny to watch uh, Ron DeSantis criticize Nikki Haley's uh, 
uh, lack of slavery when he said just not too long ago that slaves benefited, <laughs> that blacks benefited from slavery. So for, for Ron DeSantis to give anybody a lecture about the sl- slavery and civil war is kind of fun. It, it, it was ridiculous. And, and of course, it, it, it's, it's just one more instance of the mystery, I think, that has to surround the performance of Ron DeSantis in 2023. What happened to him? Well, exactly. I mean, if, if you want to talk about 2023 being a terrible political year, there was no one who had a worse year than Ron DeSantis. He started the year as a legitimate challenger to Trump. They were close in the polls. And he had won big in Florida, supposedly or previously swing state. And he just looked like, well, he, he looked a little like Mario Cuomo after he had won re-election in New York. And everybody thought, well, he's got to run for president now. Well, he, Cuomo didn't. And so as it turns out, neither did DeSantis. He just completely, it seems to me, went from total contender to absolute also-ran, and fairly quickly. My prediction is that he's somehow is going to cow the legislature into banning the two-term limit for governors, and he's going to be able to run again in uh, 2026, because otherwise, what's left for Ron DeSantis? Yeah, we've got two Republicans in the Senate, yeah. and, uh, and both of them tough to, to dislodge. I mean... Marco Rubio is still popular, and uh, I don't know. I'm not so sure about Rick Scott, but on the other hand, he's got all the money in the world. That would be a losing proposition to run against Rick Scott. So he doesn't want that, and you're right. Otherwise, he's a private citizen. You know something? I keep watching, you know, I'm watching the debates, and of course I'll watch the one on the 10th, uh, the CNN debate, but it just feels like it's all an exercise into who's going to finish second to Trump and no more than that. And, and, you know, Chris Christie, I mean, I, you know, there was some talk that maybe he would back, he would endorse Nikki Haley. But, but Nikki Haley, first of all, says she would pardon uh, Donald Trump if she won. She would mm-hmm. vote for him if he was indicted and won. Mm-hmm. So, so for Chris Christie, what's the difference between, you know, uh, Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy, right? I mean, they're, they're still pro-Trump in their own ways. There's really very little to attract him to any of the other contenders. It would merely be a matter of trying with a Hail Mary pass to put some sort of a stumbling block in front of Trump in New Hampshire. And that would probably not particularly last. Now, Nevada is a very confused situation. They've got a primary and a caucus. And I don't think people are going to wind up paying a whole lot of attention to it in the end. In the Republican Party, that's what I'm talking about. Democratic Party is still doing what they've done in the past. But... The only other thing that matters really is March 5th, Super Tuesday, all those primaries. That will determine the nomination, it seems to me. And it's probably going to coincide with the trial, the big Jack Smith trial. And if that happens, of course, it could be delayed. And that's also quite likely or certainly quite possible. But even if the trial is going on, it won't be concluded. And the appeals that will follow if Trump loses in the trial will not be concluded. And so it seems to me after Trooper Tuesday, as has often been the case in recent years, we'll know the nominees. I, was, I can't remember a Republican race with a non-incumbent that is so preordained the way this one is. Even 1980 with Ronald Reagan was yeah, not. But he, he, lost, he lost Iowa to right, Bush. Right, right. 
And that was a contest there for a while. And we also were all talking about Reagan. Maybe he doesn't really have it. Maybe he's lost his fastball, et cetera, et cetera. This was before he was ever president, of course. The other thing that that I think is emerging in in some of this uh, non-contest Republican season is uh, talk about vice president and who's going to be vice president. Now, that might just matter a good bit in a second Trump presidency. The man is going to be in his 80s during that second term. And, uh, well, whatever is the state of his health, it's also possible he'll still be fighting some legal entanglements, including crimes he cannot uh, pardon himself for, for example, in Georgia. So it's possible that whoever is his vice president is going to have a a unique role in, in American history. And so I was thinking for a long time that this might be the ultimate goal of Nikki Haley, for example, because Trump's going to want more appeal to women. He's going to want to be able to say, look, I'm putting a person of color on my, et cetera. I mean, she's his Kamala Harris to some degree. And now, now I've been stunned in the last week or two to see the ferocious attacks against her that have come from the real hardcore MAGA types, the, the, the um, Steve Bannon and that whole crowd and Tucker Carlson and that whole crowd. Uh, and they're not quite the same crowd, but you know what I'm saying. These are, these are personalities in Trump's world, and they are perhaps eclipsed within Trump's world, but they still have a lot of influence on Trump supporters. They hate her. They Nikki hate yeah. her with a passion. I'm not even sure why. Well, I mean, first of all, that started when she got in the race to begin with, and, and and Trump was talking about her disloyalty. Now, of course, everybody has to, you know, provide fealty for Trump, except except Trump has to do nothing in return. I mean, there's no just no such thing as loyalty going the other way from Trump. But he's he's been furious with her ever since she announced her candidacy. But you mentioned you mentioned well well it could be Haley, but it probably won't be anymore because you know and uh, because of uh, what she's uh, what what she's become. What about Elise Stefanik? I mean, she wants it badly enough. Well, she wants it as badly as Carrie Lake and some of the other women who have been in Trump's ambit. Uh, Carrie Lake, of course, is the defeated candidate for uh, governor in Arizona. I thought she won. Yeah, exactly. She seems to think so, or at least she keeps claiming she thinks so. Well, you know why? You know what she has, of course. She has Trump syndrome. No. Okay. She has a sense... um, Oh, right, exactly. Yeah. She's an, she's an Arizonan, so she has a sense of humor. Yes, thank you. Of course. Yes, of course. I, 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 I know how I could have blanked on that I for feel even much, a second. I feel much better. What about Tucker Carlson for vice president? That would be the ultimate FU, wouldn't it? It would. It would. And I think that's unlikely, though, because Trump is not going to want anyone who, in any sense, has a separate and yeah. even consider even, even in some people's minds stronger claim to a portion of his loyalty base. That was the beauty of Mike Pence. He really didn't. I mean, Mike Pence was so uh, part of the uh, yes sir, yes sir, yes sir that I thought his name was Arafat for a second. You know, just <laughs> were those jokes ever funny? I'm not sure. But uh, so, but do you have a prediction? Well, do I have a prediction for Vice President? Yeah. I think he will try to find a woman. And I'm not sure that he's going to be able to find one that he's really satisfied yeah, with. Yeah. That is my sense. And, and, uh, and it's probably not going to be Haley. No, and I think no, he's no. a little bit afraid of Carrie Lake. And I think that she is just a little bit too 
combustible, yeah. perhaps. And she's never held any sort of public office. And you do want to cast at least some thought to what would happen if somebody you're picking for vice president might got to might get to be president. I know that isn't uh, I know that isn't job one, and that's not the main consideration for presidential candidates. But it ought to be. I thought Christy Nome for a while was a possibility, South I Dakota governor, and I she she has her own little uh, extramarital affair going on, I believe. But but that didn't hurt that didn't hurt Trump. So why would it hurt a running mate? can't see why it would. I, I mean, I, if people really had decided she was the answer, I think uh, she would be able to overcome that. And there were some other women, but the, the ones who have really thrust themselves forward in, in really, I, I mean, embarrassing ways are, uh, are, are Carrie Lake and, um, and Stefanik. Uh, as, as you said, Elise Stefanik, although she just today on television was denying it and saying, oh, I would, I would never discuss the content of my conversations with Donald Trump, strong implication being I've talked about it with Donald Trump. Do you realize that nobody's mentioned the name Didi Scuzzafaza anymore? You know, it's stunning to me yeah. that the entire Scuzzafaza uh, boomlet... Which we out. led. Well, we, we led it, and I think to some degree we were it. <laughs> okay, so here's another thing. <laughs> One of thi- our famous boomlets. Here's another thing that... Uh, I mean, nobody seems to care about his indictments as an issue. Nobody seems to care about January 6th. I mean, I mean, I think Biden gave a very effective speech talking about what happened there. But, but more and more people now think that the people in prison are martyrs, that, they, uh, that, that what happened on the 6th was not any kind of insurrection at all. I mean, remember how outraged Kevin McCarthy was? I mean, I, of course, remember Kevin McCarthy and... And the, the, the madness of all this is that he looks like some sort of sensible person. No, not when in me. fact, Well, I, I think what he did, I remember literally watching him on C-SPAN in the middle of the night on the floor of the House saying, all right, you know, Donald Trump's responsible for Yeah, this. oh, that I remember. Yeah, sure. And, and all that. Violence is never a legitimate form of protest. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding. These facts require immediate action by President Trump. Accept his share of responsibility. Quell the brewing unrest. And it stunned me when 48 hours later, 72 hours later, whatever it was, he was, you know, back on his knees and saying, oh, well, you know, gosh, we'll have to figure out what to do here. And no sense of guilt for Trump, not even close to what McConnell was willing to say and do. And, uh, and then he goes down to Mar-a-Lago and kisses the ring again. Yep. It was distressing to think that someone who, you know, I think had been seen as a respectable voice uh, of, of his political views and of his political party at some point. But the thing about all this and the thing about 2023, Ken, that I really, I really can't let go. I mean, this is just... The, the bottom line for me is what has happened to the Republican Party. It's cult-like. The fact that Donald Trump says, no, Tom Emmer cannot be speaker, even though he won the votes of the Republicans in the, in, in the conference. And then they come up with Mike Johnson, who I just checked. He's a member of Congress from Louisiana. So I didn't even know that. But he, this is what does, this is what really knocks me over. I mean, I was thinking about Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert yelling out liar, you know, during yeah. Bond. I mean, remember when Joe Wilson did it to Obama and everyone was shocked. Nobody's shocked anymore. 
no, no one's shocked anymore. And and uh, and of course, Bobert and Taylor Greener are, are two more cases in point. But but I'm glad you brought up Emmer because Donald Trump literally torpedoed that man on yeah. his way to the speakership. He was in the leadership. He was a logical next candidate. He had won the caucus vote, and Trump said no, and that was the end of him. He didn't vote against the results in 2020. Right. And and in the last 24, 48, 72 hours, Tom Emmer has endorsed right. Donald Trump for president. I also remember Lauren Boebert yelling out during a Beetlejuice performance. What was that all about? Yeah, I, I, she was yelling something, something, the name of some religious leader. Yeah. I, 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 no, it was like, God, oh, God, oh, God. I think that's something what, like that. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. A religious figure was, was definitely involved. You know, we're sitting here talking about, you know, things about Nikki Haley's answer and, and, and Lauren Boebert and things like that. And, and yet what we're not thinking about is that what Trump says on a daily basis, that he would execute the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that he talks about immigrants poisoning our blood, that his opponents are vermin, I'm, what, shoplifters should be put to death. We're almost numb when, any, when he says anything, and yet... We go. We do like you know with uh, with uh, Rick Perry's third department. He couldn't come up with that was that was devastating. That was crucial, and yet and yet we just shrug our shoulders when he says something monstrous. Yes, but I think that's because we have all accepted, and whether Republicans or not Republicans, we have all accepted that Donald Trump is who he is. That he's going to say all these things that he might, in fact, do all these things. And we have long since decided that man should never be anywhere close to power. Or we have decided if that man gets power, a lot of things that I'd like to do will get done. And that's, that's the divide in America today, is it not? I mean, it's people who are appalled at the idea of Donald Trump, and it's people who are energized in some sense or justified in some sense by the thought of Donald Trump being president. And those two camps are going to duke it out from now until November, and we shall see which is the more numerous in America. Right at this point, I'm not sure polls are telling us. I'm not sure polls can measure it. Well, not, certainly not at this point, uh, 11 months away or 10 months away. You know, I just realized we haven't said a word about Biden. I mean, <laughs> for the longest time, I, I was thinking he wouldn't run again, and I'm, I guess I feel it's probably too late for him to pull an LBJ, but so many Democrats I've talked to wish someone else would run, and yet Joe Biden, it, it will be, right? Well, LBJ pulled an LBJ on March 31st. But the, yeah, but there were no filing deadlines and no early primaries, and really primaries didn't decide the nomination back then, right? That's no, fair. No, that's, that is correct. But in the absence of the system as it has evolved in recent decades, if a president were to not be on the ballot, and let's, let's assume he's alive, so it isn't a question of President Harris, if he were to pull the plug at this late date, and I'm not predicting it by any means, I think you're right that he's waited way too long to do it in any sensible fashion, but if it were to happen, as I understand it legally, the Democratic National Convention, the national meeting of the Democrats, um, that, that will convene uh, in Chicago in August, uh, will have the power to name someone as their nominee. And if they did not do that, uh, the Democratic National Committee, which is, what, 400 and some people, it's a huge group right. of people, would have the legal authority to put a name on 50 state ballots. 
I think, would you say it's fair to say that Biden has had a pretty successful term? I mean, not perfect, but lots to be proud of. And yet his polling numbers have been deadly. They are deadly, and they aren't necessarily the end for him. We have seen other people come back, uh, uh, usually to win in only three-way races. I mean, it's very hard to see him gaining 10 points, for example, to get back to 51% of the popular vote. But stranger things have happened. And it is conceivable that in the same way that a lot of Democrats clenched their teeth and, quote, settled, unquote, for Biden uh, in 2020, that enough of the party could be persuaded to do that again to make it a contest. Uh, But he's not going to be much more popular, I don't think. He hasn't ever been. He briefly was over 50 percent in his first months or so, but not really by much. I mean, he didn't have an over 60 percent moment in his presidency. He didn't have that honeymoon. He didn't have hardly any of the usual lift that comes from just ascending. Is this going to be a referendum on Biden or Trump or both? Well, it will be a referendum on both. But uh, the question then becomes the other way of answering your question is to say, which of those two people it's primarily a referendum on, that person will probably lose. And if it's, if it's the incumbent president, which it in many cases historically has been, then that incumbent president, Jimmy Carter, for example, uh, loses. And in the case of Gerald Ford, it was kind of a Nixon-Ford, Ford the partner of Nixon, and that kind of incumbent who lost. Of course, in both of those instances, both Ford and Carter, the economy was in shambles. Yeah. We had runaway, inf- well, not runaway inflation, but we had the worst inflation of our lifetimes. And God knows, if you put those two lifetimes together, that's pretty much all <laughs> of American history, isn't it? Tell you. Uh, so so we, 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 we have to say we have not seen economic conditions since the 1970s, like both Ford and Carter had to try to defend. Even even Reagan's numbers were not great, but they were better, and so he could claim America was mourning in America, and that made that election a referendum partly on Ronald Reagan, whom people liked, and also a referendum on Walter Mondale, who never really got across. People never really fell for Walter Mondale. He just he never really captured the national imagination. You know, I'm thinking I'm writing some things down. I mean. I mean, the, the border problem, once upon a time, the Democrats used to dismiss it as a sign of Republican hate, but the Democrats really know that it is an issue and they don't know how to handle it. Well, they don't. And if you're talking about as many people as we're talking about now, uh, it's going to become the issue in the way that usually only something uh, in the sense of a war or a crisis or an economy is the uh, a, a, a tailspin economy is, quote, the issue. I I see a real possibility that the economy, whether it gets a whole lot better or not, or fact fact of the matter is right now unemployment is low, inflation is coming down, it's already back within historical patterns. It it, it would seem at this moment that the economy won't be the issue next fall, and unless we get the United States into a war, probably the biggest issue is going to be immigration. I see more and more polls showing that that African-Americans are talking more and more about being disenchanted with Biden and maybe staying home in November. Um, that elects Trump. Yes, it does. And and I'm not sure that, that African-Americans were ever enchanted with Joe Biden. No. But, and he can't pull 
uh, Kamala Harris out of his hat, you know, and, and say this is a reason to vote for me a second time. She hasn't really captured anybody's imagination either. Or the Supreme Court choice. Yeah, I, I mean, he's done what he could do to improve mm-hmm. that relationship. And, of course, a, a lot of the brunt of higher inflation and gasoline prices and things like that has fallen on the African-American community, not for any racial reason, but just because they have more exposure to, to those prices. They have more. That's a bigger part of their monthly budget overall. And so they're as unhappy as anybody else, and maybe more so. And then we, fo- we focus in on them and we say, well, you're disloyal to Biden because you're black, and therefore you must be loyal to the Democrats. And there's no law that says that, and there's no, there's no reason for them to really feel that way, or there's no reason for them to feel that whatever the Democratic Party might have done in the 60s uh, means that they have to vote Democratic for the rest of their lives. Now, in the end, I can't see them being attracted to Donald Trump, but as you say, if they stay home, they elect him. But let me go. Let me go to Congress. I mean, we've talked about Kevin McCarthy and, and the, just the insanity of trying to placate right wingers, and and then his then and then George Santos and his resignation and uh, Santos's expulsion. But you probably know this: never in the history did both the House and Senate switch majorities, like one, you know, one chamber being controlled by Republicans and one by Democrats, and then switching to the opposite. That could happen this year. Right now, I think that's where the betting would take you, uh, because the House, well, not because the House has made a, made a shambles of itself, and because of all the things you've already talked about. And he's got, what, two votes to spare? Right, you know something? The prospect in the next weeks and months are that that, that majority could be on the line week after week, month after month. <laughs> That's, you, can't, you can't begin to govern that way. The only way you could really carry on an effective Congress with this size of majority would be to make some kind of accommodation with a certain number of members of the other party. That has happened in the past, and it could happen again, but not with this bunch. I don't see it happening with this bunch. So I think it's going to be a highly dysfunctional Congress. And then on the other side... You've got a completely different dynamic in that the Democrats have so many vulnerable seats and the Republicans have essentially none. Right. I mean, we, I think we agree that Joe Manchin's seat is gone for the gone. Democrats in West Virginia. John yes. Tester is, um, is vulnerable. Sherrod Brown, maybe Jackie Rosen and Bob Casey. But the thing is, as you say, there are more vulnerable. I mean, who knows what's going to happen in Arizona with the cinema seat, but there are more vulnerable Democratic seats than there are Republicans. So I think it's fair to say that the Senate is all but won by the, to be won by Republicans. Yeah, I think the Democrats would do well to, to, to hold on counting their independents who vote with them. They'd be, they'd be lucky to be at 48 or 49. And so with and that, and the House, we talked about the House. I mean, Democrats got screwed with redistricting in 2022, especially in New York, where, where they messed up, in Florida, where DeSantis you know, did what he wanted to do and got away with it. But but I think if abortion, and we didn't talk about abortion, but if abortion continues to be a big issue, that could, I don't know, theoretically help the Democrats win back the House. Yeah, I think it helps with the House. I think better maps help in New York. I think uh, being a little more focused on what their vulnerabilities are and were uh, will help in California. I, I think there are several places 
where the Democrats should be able to cobble together a net win. Now, they're going to lose some seats in North Carolina because of a map, right. uh, and, and they're still behind the eight ball in Florida and Texas. And, and they got the majority back in 2018, as I recall, largely because changes were made in Pennsylvania. I mean, it's that close. Just right. one state Florida too, can yeah. change its map and make the difference. So these are going to be tiny majorities, I think, for a good long while. That's not good news for the House, not good news for Congress, not good news for the country. I think you're better off with healthy majorities in the House and Senate that can actually govern, especially, uh, especially if they can actually get something done in concert with the president. But I think we have even larger dysfunctionality problems uh, with regard to a Trump presidency. We used to always end this, this kind, these kind of shows because I used to have, I used to compile these lists of by the hundreds of those in the media and the political world who died in the previous year. But I want to limit my list to just three: uh, Diane Feinstein, uh, Rosalind Carter, and Sandra Day O'Connor. All women, obviously. Obviously, they were all groundbreakers. Rosalind Carter, mostly, I think, in terms of her partnership with her husband, which was certainly she wasn't the first woman to matter greatly to her husband, president. But the nature of their relationship and the nature of the way they worked together, I think, was uh, was unique. Uh, now, of course, Sandra Day O'Connor was the first woman on the United States Supreme Court, and she was not only the first woman, but she was a person who clearly believed that the court's responsibility was to try to ascertain the law and to balance all the interests in a case and to look for a decision that could be a compromise, that could recognize the competing interests in a case. And she wasn't driving uh, one agenda that was all important to her and that she was ready to go to war for day in and day out. It, that that I think was welcome on the court and has been much missed. And yeah, the, the right, right, the swing, the swing, just even though she hated that term, she was this, and it shows how far the court has moved to the right because she was the swing justice. Then it was Anthony Kennedy. Now it's you know John Roberts. They keep moving more and more to the right as the so-called swing justice. That's correct, and and who knows how long that may be the case because the the age. You know, the, the actuarial tables would indicate that the court's only going to be more conservative. And if Donald Trump is the president again, he could wind up appointing literally a majority of the members of the court. Yeah. I don't think anyone's been able to do that since FDR. And uh, he served three and a half terms or three full terms right. and, and part of a fourth. So uh, that's another pretty stunning prospect about a, another Trump term. And then finally, of course, Diane Feinstein, whom I remember back to the 60s. Uh, I was in California in the years of her rise. I remember her on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. I remember her becoming the head of that board and then becoming mayor when George Moscone was shot and killed by the murderer of Harvey Milk. You remember her announcing it to the press? She was the person who announced it to the world. Yeah. Mayor Moscone has been shot. It still gives me chills. Me too. Me too. When I think about hearing her voice and hearing all the emotions and thoughts that came through in her voice as she made that announcement, and and she had steel. When when a lot of us when a lot of us would have fallen apart, uh, she held together and meant a lot to that city, meant a lot to the state. And I think she was a good senator. Uh, I think it was sad in the end that she stayed too long yeah. and shouldn't have run for the last term, mm-hmm. and probably should have should have resigned during that last term. But again, the steel that she had that made her determined to serve out her last term. That steel, when it was needed, 
by San Francisco and California and the country. Uh, it was there. Ron Elving is a senior editor and correspondent on the Washington desk for the NPR News. We worked together at NPR for many years and produced the It's All Politics podcast. Our lives and, indeed, the nation haven't been the same since. Uh, Ron, it's always great working with you. No, Ken. Nothing in my entire career do I look back on as fondly as the time I spent with you. I I know you mean it because I mean it too, and I I appreciate it. Ron, that was wonderful. That was great. Okay. I should have recorded this. I know I should have recorded this. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) It's okay. I'm sure it's in the cloud. (laughs) So am I. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at thepoliticaljunkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Please stay safe. I'll see you soon.